Welcome to Inside Parliament. It's a weekly catch-up of the political stories that we've been covering for One News. We're coming coming to you from the legendary Beehive TVNZ studio. After a few weeks away, it's nice to be back. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. I'm Benedict Collins. And I'm Mikey Sherman. I'm still getting used to saying that name, but I'm sure it will come over time. <laughs> um, it's been a big week for us, um, the three of us back um, together again, which has been really good and a really interesting week in politics. Um, Mika Faitari was probably the big story um, that happened yesterday, so let's take a look at that first. Another week, another minister gone. Mika Faitari uh, will be removed as a minister with uh, immediate effect. Sacked over an allegation Mika Faitari assaulted her staff member, an incident which took place during this trip to Gisborne with the Prime Minister. While the facts are in dispute, the report says an incident occurred. Ministerial Services has been investigating over the past three weeks. Mika Faitari initially working from her electorate but returning for the Te Wairua Treaty Settlement. Mika I'm copying fully with the investigation. The MP returned to Parliament full-time this week, even giving a speech in the House just yesterday. The Honourable Mika Faitari. But today's news sent Mika Faitari back into hiding. The Prime Minister refused to go into further detail on the report, saying it was an employment matter and she wanted to protect the privacy of the staff member involved. However, the Department of Internal Affairs will prepare a version of the report fit for public release. The staff member had only begun working for Mika Faitari a few weeks prior to the incident, but One News understands the MP has a history of poor staff treatment, including during her time as Senior Private Secretary of the late Labour MP Parekura Horomia. It even drew attention from the office of then Prime Minister Helen Clark. Look, I think we've got a government in chaos. Um, we've seen weak leadership and weak government now for weeks. Uh, two ministers, very similar circumstances in as much as they just should have been dealt with earlier. Jacinda Ardern, though, focusing only on the now. I've made the decision solely on this incident. The Prime Minister says Mika Faitari will seek support for managing staff and expects the MP to return to Parliament next week. So obviously a significant blow there for Mika Faitari, kicked out of Cabinet, stripped of her ministerial portfolios over that allegation. It must be said, though, that she obviously still does dispute some of the facts. But in terms of uh, the call that the Prime Minister had to make, it was a difficult, no doubt, but necessary call. Um, obviously, she's been under a lot of pressure uh, more recently with Claire Curran, but Mika Faitari, they needed to clean it up quickly. Yeah, and... I don't think it was a surprise what we heard yesterday. Um, when there was an incident, um, when there was an alleged um, altercation, if you lose confidence in the minister, they have to go. And politics isn't like a normal job where you go through a process. If the prime minister loses confidence and you doesn't think you're the number one person for the job, you've got to go. And that's the harsh, brutal world of politics. It's also about protecting the Prime Minister. She had to come out and look strong. She was criticised over her handling of Claire Curran. She had to make a move on this. And it's as much about protecting her um, as anything else. Yeah, I guess there's, there's clearly been some sort of an altercation here. What exactly happened, <clears throat> no one knows yet. We haven't been given the report and it's clear that um, you know Mecca is disputing parts of it. Um, but I think what we're going to see here is this could well drag, drag out um, for some time yet. Uh, we're going to be covering it again, I guess, when you know uh, Mecca returns to Parliament. 
and then eventually, you know, they're going to release this report, which gets, so, you know, so the Prime Minister has sort of acted, but I still feel the story is going to, you know, carry on for a, a bit longer. I definitely thought <coughs> that it, it would have been um, more strategic for Mika Whaiteri to perhaps have come out yesterday and um, do a little stand-up with the media, have a, have a cordial with the media, in order just to, 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 like you said, um, kill the story quickly instead of having it drag out, um, because when she returns to Parliament next week, she won't have, uh, say, the support of the Prime Minister next to her. The Prime Minister will be in New York at the United Nations, um, and so she'll have to rely on her Māori caucus, who, granted, uh, will be wrapping around her um, quite strongly. Um, but if she has have come out yesterday and you know fronted the issue um, with media, then she wouldn't have to go at it again next week. Because people watching this might say, "Ah, oh, you know, poor media, leave her alone." But the, the first thing is is that this, the message it sends by her not fronting is that she's really unhappy with the decisions that's been made, and she couldn't bring herself together to front the media and toe the party line. It also she was a minister. She elected she was elected by us the people and they owe the public something when they resign. It's a big deal. So I just think that in those situations, even though of course we'll look at it from a different lens from people outside, that's you're a minister, you're elected to this place by the people, you owe them. And yeah. she was strong and confident enough to have returned to Parliament full-time this yeah. week, even though the report hadn't been um, published yet. And so, she, obviously, she wanted to show that she was able to sort of weather the um, mental and um, physical strains of, of this sort of ordeal. Um, but then Not to Front yesterday sort of sent, sent the quite the opposite message. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder whether what, we're, what we've seen here with... Um, Claire Curran and what we've seen here with Mika Whaiteri as well, that you can sort of take it back. I wonder whether you can sort of take it back to what happened last year with the Labour Party. Um, you know, Annette King, um, you know, rolled as deputy leader, but the way it happened, she was clearly unhappy at the time. She threw in the towel, and then you had, the, you know, the people who do the Labour list um, ranking Sue Maroney so low that she, she had had a guts full, you know... <clears throat> And she threw in the towel as well. And those were two really experienced women. Um, obviously, Annette King, you know, had been a minister before. Sue Maroney, I felt, was probably one of their best performers, you know, in Parliament, got stuff done, even in opposition. Um, and then, you know, not long after, oh, we're, we're in government, we need to bring women up into into Cabinet. And then you've, you know, you're bringing in people who clearly, you know, weren't up for the job, especially, I guess, with, with Claire Curran, because you'd rolled some of your most experienced women. Interesting to see that there will be no reshuffle, um, Jacinda Ardern um, passing um, the customs portfolio over to Chris Farfoy, who has um, another um, job on his plate. That uh, that in itself raises some questions as to whether or not it's putting extra pressure on a cabinet um, that is already um, uh, under a heavy workload and under feeling the heat, I guess. It's, I'm wondering if um, that was a wise move um, not to have brought someone else in um, and sort of uh, <clears throat> promote some of those um, other MPs. Because the perception, it looks as though they don't have options. Now, whether that's the case or not, um, we'll leave it up to other people to decide. But that's the perception. If you just keep loading um, them with other things, it looks as though you don't have a long list to fall back on um, and that experience. And, that, I mean, this is what happens when you're out for nine years, right? Mm. You, you, There aren't that many people who have done the job before. There's a handful, in fact. But that's why you've got to look after them when you're in opposition and keep them hungry and keep them active so that when you get to here, you've got a breadth of experience that you can call on.
Yeah, and I, I guess you see that that those that handful of people who have been ministers before, and you know, did have a lot of parliamentary experience. They're really getting loaded up with a lot of you know yeah. a lot of responsibility, a lot yeah. of weight um, in this government. I, yeah. I, I think. And just one final point that I thought was interesting was Jacinda Ardern saying that she would keep the door open uh, for any of her ministers, um, perhaps, if, if they were to sort of come back once she regained confidence in them. I thought that was interesting. It sort of seemed to suggest that perhaps Mika Whaiteri could come back further down the track. Yeah, but, I mean, look at um, Trevor Mallard. He's come back <laughs> and um, is now the Speaker of the House. Him and Tohenere famously had a little bit of a dust-up. Now, we don't know what the altercation was in this situation, of course, but, you know, a physical altercation, and um, they both carried on. So he, he got done for assault over there, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, and that won't happen in this situation. So, yeah, just interesting to compare mm. some of the things from back in history. But from one thing that wasn't particularly good for the government to another thing that wasn't particularly good for the government, and that's this meth contamination story. So let's have a look at that now, and then we can discuss the pros and cons. After years of denying it was misusing meth tests. In hindsight, Housing New Zealand was wrong to apply them more broadly. Today, Housing New Zealand is putting up its hand and saying, we got it wrong. We got it wrong on a number of counts and people got hurt. The agency's finally admitted using bogus science to evict hundreds of its tenants. But its formal apology and promise of compensation met with a lukewarm response. It just doesn't cut it like the money, eh? It'll definitely help, but they've got to fix a lot of things in, in, in my head and, and the kids' heads. You know, is, are they affected for, for life? Well, an initial amount would help people address some of the immediate material needs, but they should be looking at each individual case. Those found to have been unfairly evicted will be offered between two dollars and $3,000 in compensation. But Housing New Zealand's records are so slack, it doesn't know where many of these people have gone. The board's chairwoman didn't front to apologise, heading off on an overseas holiday instead. But she, and key staff involved in the scandal, will all keep their jobs. I have confidence in Adrian Young Cooper, who was chair of the board through a period of time when this was the worst, some of the worst uh, of this activity was going on. Under the oversight of the national government, tenants were evicted for tiny traces of meth, less than what's found on banknotes, and presumed guilty from the outset. But today, the party rubbished the apology. Well, they need to find a spine, actually, and stand up for the fact that New Zealand taxpayers don't want to be providing houses for people to commit illegal activities. Oh my goodness, she should hang her head in shame for being the government that pushed and whipped up this hysteria. As it looks to recover from the scandal, the housing agency's promising a more humane approach. It will generally only test a house now if it suspects there's been meth manufacturing. Yeah, so I think what we saw with, with yesterday's report coming out was um, yeah, obviously we've got another apology here, we already knew what had gone on was pretty rotten um, uh, but we had the compensation spelled out um, for those you know, for the 800 people who had the tenancies that were ended, you know, a couple of thousand dollars um, it's, to me a few really interesting things is that you know, no one at Housing New Zealand loses their job, I mean I just think it's incredible. It's that, extraordinary. That the, you know, that Phil Twyford, hey, who deserves absolute credit for destroying this whole meth myth in the first place. One of the first things he did when he came into power was, you know, call for that investigation by Sir Peter Gluckman. <coughs> but I, I can't fathom how he can have total confidence in Adrian Young Cooper, the chair of Housing New Zealand. He, he says 
you know, she was in charge for a lot of the time. You know, she's caused an enormous devastation. Um, you know, cost taxpayers, wasted $120 million, a good chunk of that under her watch. And she can't even be bothered. You know, she's overseas on holiday. That she- would never fly in the private sector. If you if you had a oh. loss and made a $120 million mistake. Now, whether it's her or someone else, I just feel with things like this, someone has to be held accountable. You need you need someone to say, yep, um, I'm really sorry, um, and for that I resign. Absolutely. It's about that perception. And so if, if it's one thing to say, yes, we're going to put our hand up and, and, and take ownership of it. It's another to take complete um, responsibility and ownership by way of, um, you know, stepping down when you have been in control of such um, a, a major stuff up. The other thing is, um, in terms of the government of the time, obviously it was national. <clears throat> and then we heard from Judith Collins still trying to drive the drive the blade in, I guess, um, to those families who were evicted on, on these grounds. And she can argue all she likes, in my opinion, on um, you know whether or not the taxpayer would support this sort of behaviour in the houses. But it fails, that argument fails right at the get-go, because right at the get-go were those bogus tests of which the, the rest of the argument is based on, and those tests were bogus. And so, um, you know, to, to get to continue with that sort of an argument, yeah. uh, I guess what seems disingenuous. Well, well, National's just all over the show on this. Two weeks ago, uh, their leader, Simon Bridges, was apologising to all the people who got caught up in this meth madness. Not just housing New Zealand tenants, but lots of private landlords out there as well who've been sucked into this you know, absolute scam. New Zealand's the only country in the world where we, where we even test houses for meth. Right, two weeks ago he's apologising. Last night he's out there t- um, putting out tweets saying, "Oh, you know, the government's apologising to meth crooks." You know, uh, you wonder how these eighty-seven-year-old pensioners who are getting kicked out of their housing New Zealand homes for tiny traces of meth feel about that. You, because you've got to balance it up. You obviously cannot and should not smoke meth in a housing New Zealand home, right? A, an illegal act. Correct. But and so what you've got to what Nationals doing is they're appealing to those out there who say, we pay for those houses and um, we, we don't want people to behave like that in them. What the, that small section who should have been kicked out of the house is clouded by the large majority of people who shouldn't. And I think we, we discussed this yesterday in the office um, with, with some points that one of the producers um, brought up um, that said, and her argument was, well, look, um, you know, if people are smoking meth in my house or in a housing New Zealand house, I want to know about it. And what did you? What's your? What was your explanation for that? Because I thought it was good. Well, I mean, the the point is one. You know, there's levels of meth all around us. Every banknote you touch, I just you know paid for my coffee. That will have had meth all over it, right? And it, why? Can you explain why? Well, because there are tiny traces of this drug just just all around us. Okay, um, and and the whole point with holding tenants responsible um, for using meth is okay. If you're going to do that, then you need to test between tenancies. And Housing New Zealand could never be bothered doing it. it. Said it was too expensive, so you could have had an apartment that changed, you know, had eight different tenants through it over the couple of years. And then you have a party, you annoy your neighbours, they contact Housing New Zealand, they'll come in and test your house for meth. If they found any traces, didn't matter if they had no proof that it was you, you were held accountable. Um, and, and they would smash you, they would kick you out of your house, and then the tenancy tribunal was also sucked into the scam. They would smash you again. And, you know, give you enormous clean-up costs against you. This is where this all went wrong. The flip side of the argument is, no, you shouldn't be smoking meth if you're in a housing New Zealand house. 
Slash but, it all, actually. <laughs> yep, yeah, right. But some people are drug addicts, right? Yeah, yeah. And kicking them out onto the street and is... Okay, let's, let's say, for example, like the um, Housing New Zealand chief executive said yesterday, oh, on average, we've got three people in our house. Okay, so say man, woman and a kid. Let's say one of them did smoke meth or someone smoked meth at a party. You're kicking those three people out, including the kid. Where are they going to go? And they're blacklisted from Housing New Zealand and lots of those people right? uh, in those situations are already um, in those low socioeconomic situations, living situations. So they're already sort of feeling the pressure of just having to, to deal with life in general. The other thing that I thought was interesting was the um, amount of compensation, two to $3,000. I mean, that's peanuts. If mm. you're thinking about um, families who have had their worlds turned upside down, um, looking for somewhere to live, having to deal with, like you said, tenancy tribunals, who are then going after you for further costs. I mean, I, I actually was surprised, and I, I would be interested to know how they came to that sort of a figure because it seems quite low to me. And the emotional stress, which was the other thing that the Greens brought up yesterday, saying yep. how do you compensate for that? Bigger picture, though, I think it's interesting because this raises all sorts of questions for private landlords as well. I brought a house earlier in the year and we were um, advised to... Um, carry out a test as well we didn't but there must be there must be thousands of people when you're either buying a house or for landlords when they're renting it out to people right. so when you look at that um, that just adds adds and adds and adds to that cost that you're talking about yeah um, so you probably saved yourself 500 bucks there or, yeah. Yeah, or, or more <laughs> um, the other thing that kind of interests me is you know people oh we, we need to know if people are use, using meth in our house it's well Okay, but, I mean, lots of things are illegal, right? Do you need to know if your tenants, you know, Smoking illegally marijuana? Yeah, or illegally streaming a movie, right? Yeah. I mean, all all three are probably doing the same amount of damage to your property. Not not much, right? Um, it, it's really interesting to me that you know some of these people just they've been just so exposed to this meth hysteria that you know they they need to know. And that's because people don't know a lot about it. You know what I mean? Most people, it, yeah. it's not something that it, it's the lack of knowledge about it and how it's manufactured yeah. and all of that and, kind of stuff. And talking about the private tenants, um, Phil you know, Phil Twyford made it really clear yesterday, the government has no ability to intervene. You know, Housing New Zealand's put its hand up, said, hey, we were wrong, we've hurt our tenants, we've caused a lot of harm, and we're, we're going to try and put things right, we're going to start trying to put things right now, even though all the staff who are responsible stay with us. Um, Phil Twyford made it clear, tenancy tribunal, the government can't act. Um, they're their chief, um, or the person in charge of the tenancy tribunal, Melissa Paul, uh, she's refused every interview I've ever asked her of. Or asked of her, um, uh, she, you know, she would sort of ramp up fears around methamphetamine contamination as well. Uh, I mean, there's just no accountability there for you know for all the, um, the times they've smashed tenants, um, you know, for meth contamination unnecessarily. So they, yeah. they she gets away scot free, and so do the um, tenancy tribunal. Yeah, big yeah. issue. Another big story this week, um, and perhaps a slightly nicer one, is 125 years since women got the vote. Um, there were lots of celebrations around here at Parliament. But let's have a look back from a um, more historic track, because this was what was on the news in 1988. They've dressed to celebrate that day 95 years ago when New Zealand women won the vote. But they're out on the streets today fighting a new cause, pay equity for women in the workplace. All those years on, and New Zealand women in their unions say they're not getting a fair deal in the workplace, compared to their male counterparts. 
What we've discovered is that women in traditional occupational groups are being paid very unfairly compared to other groups that have similar skills and responsibilities. What we're hoping to see is an increase in women's wages to reflect the level of skill and responsibility and complexity and so on that um, those jobs actually involve. Occupations dominated by women include cleaning. Their average wage per year is around $15,000, while untrained childcare workers can hope to earn around $12,000. Although once trained, they could earn up to $14,500. And the lady at the checkout's earning around $14,500 as well. These jobs average about $7 an hour, and that's before tax. I believe a lot of men working in shops are paid more than women in order to get them to stay with the job. To counter this trend, the unions are urging what's known as pay equity. For example, they ask why should a fully trained nurse earn $23,000 while a policeman first day on the job earns $32,000? And why should a childcare worker get around $14,500 while a zoo attendant earns almost $3,000 more? The pay equity argument is all about um, comparing unalike jobs, so on the basis of skill, responsibility, complexity. So you have two jobs which are quite different in terms of their duties, but very similar in terms of the level of skill and so on required to actually do them. This report, recommending a pay equity bureau, is before the government. The bureau, if established, will investigate workers who feel their pay rates been unfairly assessed. I think it's, um, we've got some quite good um, female representation here. It, even looking at the press gallery, um, Benedict and I went down and had a look. There's photos all along the walls outside our offices and around our offices. And um, we were looking at when women first started coming into the press gallery. And it was around the mid-60s, early did 70s. They, did they start to appear in the photos yeah. of one of or Parliament? two. Yeah. yeah. And it's just interesting because now the makeup of Parliament is much more even. In well, fact... Maybe more dominated by women I now. And I think I most so. of your political editors now yeah. in, in Parliament are, are most of your major um, news agencies anyway, all the yeah. political eds are. Women. And it's just interesting, mm. so even you know, using that as an example, um, and that will be mirrored in, in organisations all around. So it's quite. It's quite interesting. And they marched suffrage um, with a very special photo as they well. They did. They had a lovely photo, um, actually, with all of the female MPs of Parliament. And you had right in the middle was uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern holding little baby Neve. But the one thing that I did kind of notice, which you know some may call petty, um, but I thought it was quite funny, um, it, it was that um, right behind Jacinda Ardern uh, in this uh, historic photo is Claire Curran and Mika Whaiteri just side by side right there behind the PM and I just thought given given the uh, turmoil of the past few weeks I thought that was rather interesting. A nice moment in history captured on film forever, forever. Which, which we love. Um, another big story this week um, has been the refugee increase in quota, increase in numbers going up from 1,000 to 500 by 2020 so let's have a look at my check on that. Right now, a thousand refugees move to New Zealand each year, but soon that'll go up to 1,500. This Wellington company employs refugees and is welcoming the boost. They were so amazed that the streets were so quiet and they could let their children play outside. Um, yeah, so New Zealand's a really unique place and I'm glad we get to share that with more people in need. Since 1987, the refugee quota sat at 750. In 2016, National put it up to 1,000. 
and from July 2020, the refugee quota will go up to 1,500 per year. This is a significant increase and it is the right thing to do. But politically, it's been a diplomatic dance for the Prime Minister. Winston Peters wasn't so sure and said so on a recent trip to Nauru. But today turned up and towed the party line, saying his concerns have been addressed. Have you seen Mr Twyford's exciting housing programme? <laughs> I have. And I've also seen the immigration figures and the trend going downwards, all the preconditions which we stated. There's got to be a secret deal uh, between uh, the Labour Party and Winston Peters on this. We know he's eating humble pie on this, Winston Peters. He just doesn't uh, like this at all. Um, and he doesn't go cheap. The Greens lobbied for 6,000 refugees over five years. Golraz Garaman is a refugee herself and says it's a start. What we are actually doing is chalking up all the wins. You've got to ask, looking at it today, where were the Greens? They're more of a camouflage party than the Green Party. Well, he's just still bitter, isn't he? And it's getting a bit tired. So why wait two years for the change to come in? A simple question of logistics. The government says it'll pump 30 million into building 150 homes for refugee families and provide more facilities at the Mangari Refugee Centre in Auckland, as well as managing all the politics that goes with it. This is a story that I've been following really closely because when I was in when I was Europe correspondent, we um, covered a, um, a lot of stories on the refugee crisis, and we went to um, a couple of the borders when they were moving up from through um, Serbia and Hungary, and then up to um, Germany. And it was we got to talk to some of the um, guys who were there, and we, we were literally standing on the train tracks as people were moving their whole lives between countries and just it was one of the stories that that got me you know how stories kind of get you and you remember and you sort of follow through and when I after that story there were lots of questions obviously it was a worldwide crisis and the government was like yep we'll we'll look at it and that they moved they increased the 250 um Syrian refugees because most of these guys were Syrian refugees but it was always something that Labour said they would do more of and it's taken 10 months to get to this time and another um, two years until we see action on this. But I guess behind the scenes, it's been a fascinating balancing act because you've got Greens on one side, New Zealand first on the other, and the Prime Minister needing to go to New York at the weekend saying she's done something. Mm. So I just, it's one of those issues that seems like a no-brainer, but it's fraught with politics. Because this, this has played out for a lot of weeks, hasn't it, with Winston Peters and Nauru and all of that kind of stuff. So what are you guys thinking about it? Yes, yes, it has. It's played out. And so um, obviously this has been a bit of a sore point um, for Winston Peters in particular. He has sort of gotten his back up um, with regards to the media. Um, he's saying that, you know, we sort of um, uh, conjunctured some sort of... Um, uh, misstep uh, between the government, some sort of conflict. Um, But um, there was conflict. There was conflict. Because what you had was, you had Ian Lees Galloway saying, yes, um, as per Labour's uh, policy, we want to double the quota, full steam ahead, let's do this. Um, And then you had Winston Peters, um, who was saying, Taihua, hang on guys, let's just take a little bit of time to think about it. Um, And and so that's that's where that sort of conflicting statements um, came from. Um, And I think for me in particular, 
particular when I've sort of been watching this coalition government, that has been one of their downfalls, I would say, is on the three strikes law, on the refugees, on employment law, even on the Crown Māori um, portfolio, they haven't um, set out their, they haven't come together and sort of sorted it out behind the scenes, even a line on, on what they're going to say on particular issues. Um, it, you know, I'm not saying that they should uh, nut out the detail of each sort of major policy, because obviously they can't, but they need to be united on a simple line when it comes to these major policies, because otherwise they do appear to be out of step with each other. And when they look like that, the media, rightly so, will prod them on that. And that's what happened on this refugee issue, and that's why it sort of blew up. And what it did was actually force the government to sit down, sort it out, and, they, and then we saw the announcement, um, which was pushed out to 2020, doubling the quota. All common mm -hmm. sense. <clears throat> but then you're working with Winston Peters, who decides what he yeah. wants to do and needs to show people that he's tough. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I, I can still remember the stories coming out, you know, at that time um, from our major networks, looking at, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis and other mm. countries as well, pouring up into Europe. And, you know, when, when they're taking millions of people you know, who, who are desperate and trying to, you know, keep their families alive and, you know, not get blown to smithereens but in their own country, you, know, you kind of think, well, gee, New Zealand probably does need to do a bit more, you know, than the 750 and the last government took us up to 1,000. And also, I think, fair enough, taking a couple of years to make sure, you know, we've got our refugee centres up to speed that they can cope with all these, you know, extra people coming in and that they can, you know, is assimilate the right word? Or, yeah. You know, sort of assimilate into New Zealand culture um, you know, and, and do it well. Yeah, I, I can see that. But at the same time, two years, that's a long time. Like, that's a 1,000 people's lives, you know what I mean, yeah. by delaying by a couple of years. And I just think um, if – and that, because it has dragged on for months, if, you'd be, if it was one of the big priorities that had come through, we would have been a bit further ahead. I just think that – like, I can see the point. You have to have um, all your I's dotted and T's crossed. But it's also these – these guys bring a lot of value to New Zealand, you know what I mean? And I just think that um, that t delaying till 2020 just seems like it's pushing out and, and it seems like it's part of the political compromise and that's a shame for the people who can't return to their homes um, and are trying to look for somewhere safe to live. I know? think I think it was um, a political compromise, and it is a shame, but I think it did work out well in the end for both Labour and New Zealand First, because New Zealand First, Winston Peters has maintained that they have always um, had a policy to double the quota themselves, but all he's saying is that um, it's, we just need time to get the infrastructure mm -hmm. right, housing and so on. Um, and so in order to push it out to 2020, um, it's giving the coalition government that time um, to build up that infrastructure. And they made so many promises in this area, um, not only for refugees, but for New Zealanders as well in terms of housing and, and so on, um, that they, they made so many promises in opposition that they really need to deliver. So if they're going to sort of tell the whanau, you know, hang on, Taihua, don't come just now, you know, come down a little later down the track when we've got the house up and running, running we've got the whare all, all nice and ready for you. I think that plays well for both New Zealand First and Labour because they do have a huge amount of work to get done in terms of their infrastructure. One other note as well that I thought was quite interesting is you had the Prime Minister, the Immigration Minister and Winston Peters making this announcement, no Green Party. Mm -hmm. So even... <coughs> even if it was a um, conflict with scheduling or whatever, symbolically, they look like a team. And yep, granted, they're the coalition and, and Greens are confidence in supply, of course, but 
just this is such a big green issue. They're, they're pushing for 6,000 over five years. Yeah. And it just it felt like they were left out of it. And mm. I just think that's interesting symbolically. I think we should keep an eye on that, actually. Yeah. Because I've noticed that happening quite a bit, just on different issues. Just where's the Green Party on this? Where are the Greens? Um, and, you know, when you sort of pointed out like that, actually, it is something that perhaps we should, as media here in the press gallery, keep and an eye on. Whether it's dragging Winston Peters down to say, stand there, you say the line. that You know what I mean? You toe the line. <coughs> Especially after the, the last few weeks of, you, yeah. know, of, you know, of the sort of talk around him being so disruptive. Yeah, yeah you sit, yeah. stand next to me and you are, are well behaved. Um, there has been a lot of bad behaviour, speaking of that, um, or funny, quirky behaviour in the house this week. Um, a few laughs for us, so um, let's have a look at those. Order, order, order. I'm going to point out to the Right Honourable Prime Minister, when she's finished the other conversation, uh, that I'm here and she doesn't refer to me. Speaking of semantics, why are there over 50 references by her ministers in this parliament to it being a Labour-led government? Because we're in government and you're not. <laughs> was the reason she made the mistake she did because she was distracted by managing coalition differences in her Labour-led government? Mr Speaker, no. Uh, it's not the first time that Mike Hoskins and I have not listened to each other. Does she know the difference between GDP and Crown financial statements? Yes, Mr Speaker. Did she know at 8am this morning? Yes, Mr Speaker. Next question. The Right Honourable Winston Peters. Talk about petrol costs and their effect. Who was on television on Sunday night in a protest about money not being spent on the road north of Tauranga for the last nine years. Order, order, order. The Prime Minister does not have responsibility for who appears on television. Um, but order. what I can off the order. back... Order, order. This, this... The Prime see. This is a matter of some seriousness. It's a matter which I've had a number of representations on and I'm told that the House takes it seriously. I want to be able to hear the answer. Did she flat out ignore his text, not even an emoji? Mr Speaker, I did not even send an emoji. Well, I reject the member's assertion that I made that decision. But let me say this. I agree with the people of Tauranga that we need to fix the bloody road. Will he be putting himself forward as the keynote speaker to talk about his Kiwi Bill departments at the New Zealand Tiny House Conference in Carterton. <laughs> no, that was too fake. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you should leave that in with the three, two, one. <laughs> and you, you had a little favourite from those clips there. Yeah, so that, that last one there that we saw, that was in reference, uh, did a story earlier this week, Big um, Kiwi Build announcement uh, last week. The first one, I think, where you could come in and buy off the plans. We learned a people. Well, we learned of a person who had gone and asked the bank there uh, if, if he could get funding to go for one of these um, small apartments and um, studio apartments. And the bank said, "No way. It's less than forty square meters." Um, 
and, and so that was picked up there uh, by by National in the house. We quite Thoroughly like it. That. When, yeah. yeah, when they have a bit of fun with it, it's fun. And I think <coughs> we all sit in the debating chamber watching usually for about an hour um, on sitting days, and it's nice to have those little peps and little quirks in it. Mm. Um, but it's been a big week for us, um, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's great to have you with us on to watch Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories that we've been covering on One News. We're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. It's available every Thursday evening, or in this case Friday, on the One News <laughs> Facebook page. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app. Thanks very much for being with us. Joe. Yeah.